Georgia's DBHDD has an urgent health warning. One of every 10 counterfeit pills contain fentanyl, a powerful and very deadly drug. Pills from friends or dealers are unsafe, and one pill can cause an overdose. More info at opioidresponse.info. Welcome to Political Rewind. Great to have you all with us uh, for our Friday afternoon show, getting set for uh, the weekend. Um, We have a lot to talk about today, but before we get started, I'm looking around at the terrific panel we have here today and thinking that I'm probably the only one in here who is going through this very emotional few days because Woodstock, 50 (laughs) years ago, started... 50 years ago yesterday, today was the second day of the festival that attracted 400,000-plus people. Today was um, Sly and the Family Stone, Janis Joplin, The Who, Carlos Santana, and I'm Jim Galloway, got to admit to feeling really (laughs) misty-eyed. Hey, I I, I turned away when Simon and Garfunkel split. (laughs) Oh, God. All right. Uh, Jim, this is also a day you wanted to make some mention of one of our good, dear friends in the world of journalism as a birthday. Yeah, I want to say, give a a happy birthday shout out to Bill Shipp, the the, the longtime uh, AJC political columnist. A a monumental figure in the world of political journalism in Atlanta, and you stay in touch with him, and I really hate the fact that I haven't. He's he's supposed to be listening in Atworth right now, so, so Bill... Happy birthday. Happy birthday, uh, Mr. Ship. Okay, good. Glad we got that done. Uh, Jim Galloway, the lead political writer for the AJC, is here. You read him on Wednesdays and Sundays. And we're going to talk a little bit about actually a column that you've already put online that will appear in the Sunday newspaper. Uh, he also oversees the Political Insider blog at AJC.com. Uh, if you're watching us on Facebook Live, right next to him in the studio, Dr. Andra Gillespie is back with us, political science professor at Emory University. Before we went on the air, you said you got, what, about a week and a half, two weeks before uh, week classes start? We start on the 28th. What are you teaching this semester? So I'm teaching a seminar class called uh, New Black Political Leadership. So it's the class that my first two books uh, are kind of based on. The Cory Booker book. Cory Booker which book, and he, then the edited volume book before that about politicians of that generation or cohort. Uh, you wrote essentially a book about Cory Booker when he was mayor of Newark. Right. And, and uh, dealing with the city and, 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 the, and the black mayor of the city. And Cory Booker is in town today. Yes. Speaking at this conference of uh, African-American ministers and some 5,000 young um African-American students? So it's a young um, leadership conference for the National Baptist Convention. Okay. So he, Elizabeth Warren, Pete Buttigieg, Julian Castro, and I am leaving out one person. I Bernie can't. Sanders. Bernie Thank Sanders. you. Sanders. Tomorrow it's Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders. What a lineup. Uh, and today it's Cory Booker, Buttigieg, and Castro. So are you going to go see him? Uh, no. Oh, okay. Yeah, I mean, it's not, it's not, <laughs> it's not that kind of relationship. All right. It's I got you. It's not personal. I've just got a lot of work today. Right. Okay. Good. <laughs> uh, Patricia Murphy is back with us today. Patricia worked on Capitol Hill for uh, Sam Nunn, Max Cleland, other members of Congress, but uh, then went over to the dark side and became a journalist. Well, you were a journalist, but you uh, took a... Weren't you a journalist before you started on the Hill or no? No. I started oh. on the Hill fresh oh. out of college oh, for okay. Senator and then I went to journalism school after that and, and decided to apply a real trade. Now writing for Roll Call, for uh, The Daily Beast, and A Garden and Gun. Yes. I like to I like to stay busy and yeah. pay my bills. Yeah. <laughs> and also your column is now syndicated. The column that you write for Roll Call is now syndicated. Yes, it is. It's syndicated across the country. So typically on Sunday um, mornings, you can you can go to your local deli and get their uh, thumbed through newspaper and I might be in there. OK, terrific. Hopefully. Terrific. Uh, also today with us, Stacey Evans. She, of course, uh, was a member of the state house in representing Smyrna, among other areas, right up there in Cobb County. He ran for governor against Stacey Abrams in uh, 2018, and now we're back to practicing law at Wargo French, right? That's correct, yes. Yeah. What kind of law are you practicing over there these days, Stacey? Litigation and everything interesting. That's what I specialize in. Everything interesting. Yes. Good. Ed Lindsay, another lawyer yes. here with us today. Ed was a member of the state house as well, representing Atlanta. 
And, uh, Ed, you now you're at Denton's, the world's largest law firm. <laughs> you like saying that every time. I, it's, well, it's true. <laughs> it you, is true. It is the largest law firm in the world, and uh, you oversee the government affairs practice for, the, for Georgia, yes. right? Yes. Okay. Thank you, everybody, for being here for today. Jim Galloway, let's get started. Uh, yesterday, we got a ruling from Judge Amy Totenberg, federal judge Amy Totenberg. We've been waiting for it for a long time. This has been lingering and lingering ever since really before the 2018 election. The parties who were involved in this case wanted her to order the state to use paper ballots first in the 2018 election, but then subsequently saying this suit needs to continue because we have about 300 plus uh, lower level municipal elections coming up this November, and the, and so the litigant said we want paper ballots for those as well. What happened? Right. Well, she said she said no dice on the paper ballots. However, there was there was a lot of there were there were a lot of uh, uh, there was a lot of uh, language and a lot of conditions placed on this. Uh, 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 she okayed the use of the current machines as fallible as they all are by her by her measure. Uh, and and she ordered the state to be prepared for the March presidential primary to use paper ballots if the 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 contractor that they just signed fails to deliver and and uh, and and can't install some fifteen thousand voting machines uh, uh, by uh, by by March twenty fourth. Yeah, Totenberg essentially said this is a bad situation, but to try to switch over to paper ballots at this point would be even worse. Here's a quote. Georgia's current voting equipment, software, election and voter databases are antiquated, seriously flawed, and vulnerable to failure, breach, contamination, and attack. There's the sort of language that uh, puts your confidence behind our election process, Sandra. But it's something that we all know is true. Um, you know, so I remember being here for the first general election in 2002, I didn't even live here um, yet. And so the idea that we're still using those machines when I'm probably like four computers like away from the laptop that I had that year, I think says something. But I think uh, Judge Totenberg's ruling is, is just practical. So this isn't necessarily sort of the constitutional argument. It's a, okay, how fast can we implement yeah. this? And so she's providing guidelines that are just kind of, you know, we, this, given the circumstances and how fast it's going to take to overhaul the system and transition to a new one, she's trying to say, look, this is how you can practically sort of implement this incrementally. So, Ed, the state certainly plans, the Secretary of State Raffensperger yeah. plans to have these machines up and running for the new ones up and running for the presidential primary on March 24th. But the process is a complex one. There's a lot of training to do. And even though they expect to have it done, Totenberg's order now really puts new pressure on them. It does put pressure on them. And, uh, but, you know, keep in mind, uh, you know, everyone agreed that it was time to, to come up with a new system, that the old system had been around for, as you said, 16, 17 years. Uh, the interesting thing is where everyone who's looking at that order, and I've actually read it because I have I also represent the lieutenant governor in his lawsuit, is where where folks put the butt when they start talking about this. And what I mean by that is folks that on one side go, uh, Judge Totenberg said that these machines are antiquated and out of date, but is, al- is allowing them to be uh, utilized in this fall's uh, municipal elections. That basically says that she she sees the problems with the system, she sees the potential vulnerability of the system, but does not believe that uh, up till now there has been a serious breach. Well, but but and then you have the other side folks go. Uh, Judge Totenberg will allow the municipal uh, elections to go forward with these machines, but this is your last chance. Get new machines well, in place. Right, and, and really so, both of those are yeah, true, and both of those are true. But it is kind of interesting to watch. Uh, the discussions on uh, across the political spectrum of where folks place that butt. So, Stacey and Patricia, let me give each of you a chance to weigh in, because here's another thing based on, uh, to some extent, what, what uh, Ed was saying. Here's the another quote from her ruling. The threat of election interference has only grown since the plaintiffs were here before the be here before the court seeking relief one year ago in September 2018, while the state defendants have only just begun to launch necessary steps to provide a more secure 
election. So that's a little bit of a wrap on the knuckles for the Secretary of State's office. And again, urging him to get his act together. Yeah, and it's not that it's because there's this, this generic value on, on safe and fair elections. It's because we know at the highest levels that our state elections have been compromised by Russian officials Every single one of the 50 states has been compromised, uh, came out in a Senate intelligence report in the last couple of weeks. During Robert Mueller's testimony, he was asked, well, do you think the Russians are going to try and hack our election systems this year? He said, they're doing it while we sit here. And so there is an ongoing systemic and aggressive effort, international effort to get into these systems. And it doesn't matter what party you're in or who's running your state or who won in the last election. That's happening, and we have to come up with some quick solutions to deal with it, or I think most voters will have reason to doubt results in the future if we know this is going on and no one's done anything about it. There's nothing to celebrate in this opinion for Republicans, and they won't have to um, implement a new paper ballot system for this fall's election, but the judge really pointed out all the flaws with the machines when people have been trying to defend them and say, oh, they're fine. And if you're a part of the Republican Party, if you're part of that wing that wants to deny that there's been interference, she stomped all over that, too. Um, I have to take issue, though, with the um, the AJC's headline on this. It was judge denies paper ballots in Georgia this year, but requires them in 2020. That's not exactly true. Uh, she said you've got to have a handmarked paper ballot test in at least one election this fall. And then you've got to be prepared to do handmarked paper ballots if the machines aren't ready uh, in March. And the new machines that we have are, of course, going to print out a paper ballot for, for voters to confirm and then scan. But I think we're the words handmarked ballot or paper ballot are being interchanged here. And I just I, I hope that folks don't read that headline and then expect to get into the voter booth in March and, and be filling out a piece of paper and be yeah, upset when they're we not. Have, meaning our new system will These be... These are opti- optic scans. Yeah, right, they are. With, yeah, right. yeah. Yeah. Jim? Yeah, yeah look, uh, uh, the other thing I want... This was, this was a very, very ticked-off judge. Mm-hmm. She, Judge Totenberg was not happy about about uh, with, with the state in particular, and and there were a couple places in in, in this in this uh, in in this decision where she, I mean, she called out the, uh, the Secretary of State's office and its representatives for kind of hiding behind this this complicated maze that is that that's Georgia's uh, election system, where where when it was convenient they would say they would have the authority to make decisions, when it was not, uh, they said, oh, it's 159 counties. That they they make the decisions, and and she she was she was getting pretty. Uh, it, she she went on for several pages attacking I, I, that. I'm a, go ahead. Did you want to read yeah, one of then, it? Okay. And then there's there's one more. This 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 kind of st- stood out to me. Uh, it, it gets to to uh, uh, what has been said before here. She she said the imminent threat of contamination, dysfunction, and attacks on state and county voting voting systems, disparaged by the Secretary of State's representatives at 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 the 2018 hearing is virtually a fantasy and still minimized as speculative in ni- in, in 2019. They've been uh, those 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 threats have been identified uh, by Robert Mueller. You know, and I, I, I look. We've got two attorneys sitting here. I I'm a little. Help me understand one thing. Totenberg has had this case since before the election last year. She talks about sites September 2018 when the litigants came forward, the the plaintiffs. Could she not have accelerated this? In other words, here it is, August, and she's saying the reason we're not going to have a paper ballot in November is because there's not enough time. Did she not have the ability to accelerate the case so that she could have made that ruling in June or in May? I'm, a, I'm just not sure how this process well, plays out. Well, it gets out. back to the fundamental question of whether or not she found that the actual vote counts uh, had been hacked or compromised in the last election. And I think it's very important for your listeners to know that there hasn't been any evidence of that yet. Now, there has been evidence of folks attempting to hack 
uh, the voter registration system, which is uh, on the Internet, which is capable to reach by the Internet. But the actual vote counts uh, is a what's called a closed system, and there hasn't been any direct evidence of that. And I think that what is not in the order is as important as what Jim and others have cited what is in the order and what is not in the order is a find, uh, finding that our system has, in fact, actually been compromised in terms of the actual vote count, and that's why she's allowing these these machines, which are antiquated, which need to be replaced, which the General Assembly has said has to be replaced, and which we uh, have an order to, to bring uh, new systems uh, online and provide a paper backup, which folks have been arguing for all the way back to uh, our old friend Harry Geisinger, yeah. who dropped the first bill in 2007. I, 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 so but let's be clear, though, that the, the there was evidence in the in the case back before the last election that these machines absolutely could be hacked. So this idea that they're in this closed system and there's no there's no vulnerability there that that's that's that ship has sailed. It, it, Litigation moves slow. There's no doubt. I I don't know. I don't know that this is true, but I'm not sure that the um, plaintiffs asked quick enough for this uh, fall that, election. I know yeah, there was a request yeah. for last mm-hmm. falls. Okay. So I think Judge Totenberg was just answering the questions I, as they came. I mean, I think there are a couple of things that are really interesting, and I might actually use these as classroom examples. I mean, part of this shows the limits of judicial enforcement. Like, that's not what courts really do. And so that's part of what uh-huh. she's having to negotiate here. But I think part of the other reason about why there might be room to compromise here and less room to compromise in 2020, aside from what Judge Totenberg had already said, is the issue that municipal elections are are going to be lower salience elections. They're going to be lower turnout elections right. because people tend not to pay attention to them. And so while you could imagine a situation where people are hacking that election sort of as a, 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 a dress rehearsal for 2020, the probability of that happening is probably lower in this particular instance. And so therefore, they might say uh, we're willing to take the risk in, in, in these elections, whereas it would be far more risky to do that in next year's elections. Yeah. yeah. The, the other thing, Bill, that you have to kind of take into account is, as far as timeline goes is that Georgia has become one of the few states that has a single system of electronic voting machines without a paper backup. With, with, without a paper backup, but but it's 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 uh, it's it's a single purchase. It's it's the, this order, uh, 106 million that uh, in machines that have has been contracted for. It's probably the largest single order of voting machines in the country ever, and. And and so when you're you're dealing with a mammoth system, it's not like every every county goes out and buys whatever it wants to and counts as a, as as however it wants to. Uh, it is you've got this mammoth bureaucracy, you know, that requires an act of the legislature to move. Yeah, um, there's a corollary story, Jim, that that was in uh, on the news this week, and that's. Uh it's been a year already since Randolph County was in the spotlight nationally because of its efforts to close some polling places, some precincts, uh, and was accused of trying to suppress the uh, African-American vote in the county. And they ended up not closing any polling places. But their effort became part of a story that New York Times, Wall Street Journal, you name it, every major publication and media outlet talked about Randolph County as an example of how the Secretary of State's office was uh, working to suppress the vote by closing precincts. Here we are a year later, and Randolph County is once again talking about closing precincts, but there's a little twist in what they plan to do this time. They're going to... uh, They're talking about closing precincts in white voting districts, as if that changes the equation. Right. Well, well, the other the other thing that that, that, that uh, you're leaving out of the 28 version of the, of the story was that the re- one of the reasons that, it, that is that it caused such an uproar is that this change was done between a May primary and yeah. a November general right. election. Yeah. Right. And if, if I'm not mistaken, maybe you know maybe six weeks before the November general election. Right. Very and, little time to plan it, and uh, or or for voters to adapt. That's what I mean. Yeah. Right. Now, you, uh, Patricia. Um, this all this to me raises interesting questions. Uh, a county certainly, I assume, has the right to look at its resources and say, "We have a precinct here or a precinct there that we have to staff." There are very there's very little traffic in these precincts. We're trying to balance our budgets. There is a fiscal reason you might want to close precincts 
or when Stacey Abrams, as a legislator, voted to shorten the number of, of, of uh, advanced voting days uh, for the same kinds of reasons. So there is a balance there, isn't there? Well, I think there certainly is. And more and more Georgia counties, I'm sure, are facing this as their own populations continue to shrink. And this is a county with about 6,000 adults. Um, to have multiple, multiple voting places, you have to ask yourself how much, how many resources are they putting in per vote? And one of the precincts that they're talking about closing has fewer than 70 voters. Even if you have full turnout, that you know, that's... It's just not a lot of traffic. Is there a more efficient way to do it? I and think, you're, and you're par- paying two or three people to yeah. sit there all day. Yeah, and, yeah, and so you have. Um, I think they're doing it the right way this time. There's much more time. There's much more warning. Uh, the closures seem based on population and uh, based on the 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 facility that where they're voting. They're not ADA compliant. They can't bring. They don't have the resources to bring them up to compliance. So it does. It seems a lot less arbitrary. There's a reason behind it. Um, and it's just a reality for these smaller counties who have to pay these bills. But, but isn't it interesting that Randolph County is right back in the news for the same problem? <laughs> well, I mean, there was the optics problem um, and the voting rights issue problem, I think. And then there was the process issue. And I think, the, you know, the bigger issue was the process issue yeah. that this was being done on short notice. And it was being done without a lot of community input. Based on what I've read, it seems like there has been more community input this time. I think there would be a question of whether or not there's been enough and also whether or not there's been a larger discussion about whether or not residents actually want to pay to keep all of these facilities open. Because if we're talking about geographic dispersion and being able to get to places relatively easily, whether or not people would actually be willing to pay the price. But I think that this is a a key instance of why voting by mail actually might be a viable option in some places. Can we settle something, and we only have a couple minutes before we have to get to break, but can we settle something about, say, Randolph County and other examples of this? And Ed and Stacey, you probably have slightly different takes on this, so I'll give you each a chance to briefly respond to this before the break. Um, In a case like Randolph County, Last year, of course, the national media picked up on this as an example of then-Secretary of State Brian Kemp running for governor, overseeing the election, uh, trying to suppress the vote. Is it correct or not correct that decisions like Randolph County's are made at the local level, not at the direction of the Secretary of State? you want to, Stacey, take a first crack at that and then add? My understanding is that the locals do make these decisions, but you got to understand that all of the elections and the processes around that are overseen by the Secretary of State. So whether the decision was made on the ground last year as it was and this year as it will be, what you had last year was a very big optics problem with the Secretary of State overseeing what was going on in that county, blessing it or not blessing it. And that was the problem. I think what's going on now is very different than what was going on last year, particularly because of the timing. I think it makes sense. We have this one precinct with 73 people in it. They're going to save $4,500 in election, which to this county is significant. And I think this gives us a good example of what Pete Buttigieg has been talking about with where wouldn't it be nice if we all talked about our positions on things before we knew what the other side says? And I think to the extent I've heard Democrats coming out and condemning this now, this, this most recent thing, probably need to take a step back and think about what you would say if it wasn't a Republican saying. Ed, let me give you a last word before the break. Well, that's that's not quite right, what Stacey said, um, because it it is decided ultimately by the the Board of Elections. By the state election board. No, by by the county election board. But but still overseen. No, no, not not in terms of the final decision. The The county... ultimately makes that decision. I served on the Fulton County Election Board, and sometimes we had to rearrange precincts, and we didn't have to get the clearance from the Secretary of State's office. So it is ultimately in the hands of the county. Now, the, now the, the money, the financing. The, the financing does, yeah. uh, but not, but not the But not the actual decision of where to place the precinct or whether or not to close or open or move a precinct. That's, that's something that's decided at the local level. All right, we got to get through. You want the last word on this, or are you all set? Are you okay, Patricia? Yeah, uh, I'm all set. You're sure? Thank you. I want to make sure I'd love to say gets, something right now. Know, I love airtime. I, I want everybody to get a fair <laughs> chance in this. Let's do this, though. Let's get our first break of the show out of the way. When we come back, a couple of interesting stories have popped up on the radar in uh, the two hotly contested congressional races, Georgia 6th and 7th. We'll talk about those in a minute. You know, selling a car can be a hassle, but donating it is a whole different story. Let us take it off your hands or off your driveway and turn it into public radio and maybe even a tax deduction. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the host of Marketplace, and here is how to donate. 
Call 877-GPB-1-CAR or donate securely online at gpb.org slash cars. And thanks. Back in 1939, a scientist named Homer Dudley unveiled a machine he called the voter. It replicated human speech, sort of. Helen, will you have the voter say, she saw me? Uh. The quest to recreate the human voice, it's a puzzle scientists are still trying to solve. This afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. Join us for All Things Considered this afternoon from 4 to 7 right here on GPB. So, Patricia Murphy, we're going to look at the 6th District for just a minute, the pretty hotly contested race where Lucy McBath is uh, trying to hold on to a seat that she went away from Karen Handel last cycle. Um, Karen Handel, of course, is one of the Republicans in that race. But this story, I think, would file, we'd file under the heading of Donnie, we hardly knew ye. <laughs> or news of the weird. Yeah. Donnie Bellina, not one of the big names in the Republican field, but he was running up there in the primary election. But it becomes interesting because of what he stood for and because the Republican Party up there said, get out of the race. They did not want to be associated with him. Tell us about it. Uh, Yes. So Danny Bellina, a Republican candidate in the 6th District, extremely crowded field on both on rather on the uh, Republican side, um, has had recently associated himself and called himself a white nationalist and said, why can't I say I'm proud to be white? Why can't I enjoy being white? We should all enjoy being white. Steve King of Georgia. I just want to be the voice of the people, but apparently just the voice of the white people, to be that's how it sounded. Um, but he has uh, come out, he dropped out of the race and said that, uh, I believe it was David Schaefer, he has accused of coming to him and saying, you need to get out of this race. Yeah. Uh, he said that other Republican officials knew he ha- his son had a good job and it would be a shame for him to lose that good job if he didn't get out of the race Ooh, real that's soon. That's a little scary. A little? Schaefer, yeah, yes. Schaefer, by the way, the chair of the state Republican Party. But, you know, Jim, it is, it's interesting that while Congress is the Republican uh, uh, conference in on the Hill is still a little bit flummoxed about what to do about Steve King for uh, having proclaimed himself a, a belief, you know, saying what's wrong with being a white nationalist. You know, they stripped him of his committee assignments. Now, though, he's made even more outrageous comments about incest and rape and where would we be as a country without those things. But they still struggle a bit. If Schaefer comes to him and says, get out of the race, you know, that's probably a good sign about Republicans. If he threatened his kid, that's not so good. Well, well, well I can't speak to the latter. The right, former, me neither. I did, I, I, I did reach out to, to Mr. Schaefer, and he, he kind of declined to comment. But he didn't dispute that that he and Bellina had had a conversation, and uh, and uh, that that he had painted a picture, a fairly ugly picture for him. Look, this is what's what we're seeing here is is the, the fact that the the races in the sixth and seventh congressional districts are going to be crucial to Republicans. If David Perdue is going to survive a reelection bid, if if uh, if if Donald Trump is going to carry Georgia, they have to do at least reasonably well. In the 6th and the 7th, better than they did in 2018. You know, it's Andra, Republicans who are are very reluctant to criticize the president in any way when he essentially proclaims white nationalist values uh, seem to have been pretty quick to, to, in this case, to telling Donnie Bellina, get out of this race. Well, Donnie Bellina is not Donald Trump. And so I think those <laughs> distinctions are really important to me. Um, you know, it almost goes back to that old Tip O'Neill adage, all politics is local. Uh. And so, like, this is not acceptable in this particular district. This is a liability in this district, whomever the Republican it is, it is nominee rich, is. It, it's a rich district. Yeah. And so, well like, this is this is not this is not the place to do that. And so I'm going to throw out an old uh, political science term. The home style doesn't match the district. It's not culturally fluent with the values of this particular wow. district. And so one of the things that I would say is that this is a heartening example of where we see the party exerting itself and demonstrating that it has some power in terms of winnowing the field to make sure that somebody who is wholly inappropriate for the district actually right. doesn't get the nomination. So, uh, uh, good story uh, uh, in, in the sense that the Republicans are saying to a white nationalist, uh, we don't want you. Um, Even though, I mean, we shouldn't. they shouldn't be threatening kids if that's what's yeah, going if on that's there. Like, that's in fact what that's happened. That's really Ed, Ed well, Lindsay. Given, given would, some of the other things the man has said that is so outlandish, 
I'm not prepared to accept on faith on on faith his what he what he yeah. asserts. Yeah, that, I uh, think that, that David that's good and, for you. And I have known David Schaefer for a long time, and and I and I've seen David Schaefer when he wants to be blunt with somebody, and I'm sure he was quite blunt and. And I'm very happy he was blunt. Yeah. Uh, but uh, but I have a little bit more faith in David Schaefer than this kook. Yeah. Okay. Um, that, that that's really this, well said. This is this is the six is probably the sixth district probably has the highest educated voters of any district in the southeast. Yeah. Yeah. Certainly. Yeah. Uh, it is not rural Iowa. Well, and there are there are structural challenges for the Republican Party up there. There are major challenges on issues and where the voting the voters are going on some of these issues. They have they have really got to be yeah, they got to be careful. They've got to district. get this to get this seat back. And I think it was very wise of Schaefer. And I I uh, did not it's not my understanding that it was David Schaefer who made that accusation who uh, made that threat. Um, but I think uh, it was they need to run a very serious candidate and be extremely disciplined. And I think this exhibits that he's ready to do that. Stacey Evans, uh, let's go over to the 7th District, where uh, Rob Woodall, the Republican seat, is now open. He's not running for re-election. Uh, Carolyn Bordeaux came very close to unseating him uh, last time out. Uh, she is still uh, considered, I think, by most people, a front runner in that race. But that Democratic field is now getting very crowded. And it's even more crowded uh, now uh, because Zara Karinchak, Karinchak, mm-hmm. uh, a Democratic state rep, has entered. State I'm, senator. State senator mm-hmm. has entered that race. She has an interesting background. She was uh, Air Force intelligence during the Gulf War. She's a former federal prosecutor. So she's got an interesting background. But I'm picking up from some Democrats, and, and by the way, I'm not suggesting you've said this, mm-hmm. uh, a little concern that she could hold on to that state Senate seat, but now is throwing herself into a congressional race. And the question is, what's her rationale for doing that? Well, I, I know Zara very well. She's a, a friend of mine. She's um, a top-notch attorney in addition to all the other uh, things you've, you've spoken of. I've worked with her directly on cases, and uh, Congress would be lucky to have her. They, they certainly need her down there. But she's flipped a seat uh, from red to blue, and, yeah. and that's what you're alluding to, and, yeah. I, and I'll get back to that. But that's what we need in the 7th, and, and not an endorsement. There's a lot of good folks running in the 7th, but Zara would be a fantastic person to to flip the 7th, and she's shown that she can flip – seats already. Now, as to who can take the seat, which was once held by David Schaefer, um, I think that there are plenty wonderfully qualified Democrats uh, who can do this. But I think right now um, there's a huge focus on the Congress and knowing that we can flip that seat. I'm glad that that Zara has stepped up. I think particularly if Renee Unterman uh, eventually becomes the Republican nominee, um, Karen Schack was a huge opponent of SB 481. Renee, HB, HB 481. I'm sorry. Did I say HB 481? 481? Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, that's fine. It's HB 481, the yes. abortion uh, yes. law. Yes. Um, and obviously that was a bill that Unterman pushed. And it would be, I think, for uh, national Democrats and state Democrats, a, a face-off that they would like to see in a lot of ways. It would. It's. I think... Because of her background on the issue, that's a very natural place for her to be. An interesting point, Ed. Well, you know, going back to the to the state senate seat, uh, you now have, however, a, a seat that uh, that is now going to be very much in play in terms of an open race, which will give the Republicans a chance to flip it back. Uh, you know, as as Stacy was mentioning, it has been held for many years, I think for almost twenty years, by David Schaefer. Uh, and so now you're going to have us. That race is going to be back in play. Andre and then Jim get into this. So I, I, I'm, I'm hearing different types of strategic calculuses that are at, sort of at play here. So part of it is this idea of who has the most experience. And so Karen Shack is probably banking on her experience both in um, you know appointed and in elected positions. Even though the elected record is, is relatively thin because she's a new state senator. Um, and so you know compared to Carolyn Bordeaux, who would still be a novice you know mm-hmm. a, a novice politician, right? Then she's hoping that that experience would actually work in her favor. But then there's this larger issue of one electability sort of at the district level, and then also what is, like, what do you gain to lose by going for this other seat, especially so quickly? Um, and so um, I, I think the risk here is the fact that she is a new legislator. Um, she doesn't have sort of, like, the deep 
ties and bonds that would necessarily, you know, endear her to other people, you know, if she were running for a seat. You know, if this were, you know, she was in her third term, this would be an entirely different uh, uh, different sort of proposition here. But she's making a different calculus. Um, I think she thinks it's strategic. I think other people might question whether or not this is actually the wisest thing to do at this stage of her career. I think probably the other thing to say is she fits a profile that did really well in 2018 in terms of flipping congressional districts. And so, you know, her profile looks a lot like some of the other people who ran or came close to winning seats in 2018. Carolyn Bordeaux, um, and this is not an endorsement, doesn't quite fit the profile, even though, you know, I've got to say, like, you know, the wonky college professor, I'm all like, (laughs) (laughs) Jim, okay, uh, a a couple points. Number one, uh, Karinczak, the profile that, that, that Andra was speaking of, it reminds me a lot of Lucy McBath. Lucy McBath was headed for a state house race yeah. in 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 February 2018. We had the Parkland uh, the, the killings, and she said, "No, I'm going for Congress." And there's a little bit of a, a, an element of that in there. Um, and and Stacey, tell me if I'm wrong, but I think her parents were I- I- Iranian immigrants. It's, yeah, uh, one of her parents. I'm not sure if it was her mother or her father. Okay, all right. Uh, she did get into the Air Force Academy with the help of a certain U.S. representative named Buddy Darden. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> he has mentored her uh, over, over the last couple of decades, and she was uh, she she did serve uh, uh, as legal counsel for for Roy Barnes when he was governor. Yeah, well, I, during the flag change. Yes, um, so the, she's, yes. Oh, she she's went no, back that far yeah. with Roy. She's, no, yes. she's no wow. novice, and I have to say, as a as a fellow Northwest Georgia girl, uh, she is from Lafayette. Not Lafayette. She is from Lafayette, <laughs> which is right next right. to Ringgold. And we could definitely use some more of that and common she is, sense. Look, in look the, she, is, in the she is good on the stump. Yeah. She is very good on All the right. stump. All um, right. It's going to be fascinating to watch that race unfold. Uh, Jim, before we get to break, one last subject I want to get to, uh, and, and then we'll take our break. Uh, you mentioned Lucy McBath jumping into the congressional race. Uh, of course, her biography was one of real tragedy. Her son killed in a gun incident. Uh, and, co- and so she took on gun safety as a big part of her campaign, although we should say she ended up making health care an even uh, bigger uh, part of the effort uh, that elected her to that seat. And speaking of that, tonight, I wonder if Ed Lindsay is going to be up there in Smyrna with other Republicans from around the state. Where isn't this great timing? They're going to have their fourth annual, fourth, I think, Fifth. Thank fifth, you, Jim. Fifth annual. Marksmanship and Barbecue this is the 11th, event. The 11th District GOP. Uh, I mentioned on the show the other day that I got an email from a Republican friend of mine saying, the optics of this are crazy. What are they thinking? Um, what do you pay? 60 bucks. You get to fire any number. I think a rifle, a, a, a long gun, a pistol. Uh, you get a certain number of rounds. Uh, Five rounds. Timing seems a little off, but the Republicans are standing. I mean, Stephen Fowler has been invited. Uh, he wants to cover it for our GPB radio. They've said, come on up. I'll bet Bluestein will be up there. Uh, well, no, he's he's busy with the presidential candidates. Oh, but right. we'll have somebody. Right. We'll have somebody. So there. what do we make of the timing of this? Uh, I think it's. I, I think this is one of those cases where a ball was rolling that ought to have been stopped, and it wasn't. Uh, there's 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 nothing there's nothing in in I didn't see anything in the logistical planning of this that that wouldn't have said that this could have could have been that couldn't have been pushed off to September or October and I I've talked to many of the principals involved who who are going to be showing up and they 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 say that it's it, it it's a little bit uncomfortable. All right, Ed, we've sort of I've sort of piled on with you on this one. <laughs> well, I've attended the event in the past. I will not be there tonight, uh, but I have attended it in the in the in the past. It is a very safe. Uh, program. We we talk about uh, the importance of gun safety, and this particular uh, event does emphasize gun safety uh, as well as marksmanship. Is are, uh, are, the optics, are, yeah, are it, military style weapons uh, part of this up there? M- the year that I went, it was not. Okay, uh, go ahead. They go were ahead. The, it was not. Okay, um, and you know I don't know what's going to be okay. there tonight. Uh, but like I said, it it is something that sort of emphasizes you know marksmanship, knowing how to uh, how to use a gun and how to use a gun safely, which is. I think all of us who do own guns want other people who own guns to be able to use them safely and know when to use them. And do when you not agree to with the, my Republican friend who sent me an email showing me the link to this event and said not, the optics aren't great? I, I, 
personally, I, I think that uh, maybe out of deference to uh, the tragedy in El Paso and Dayton, it would have been good to delay this a month. Uh, but but I'm not going to criticize the folks that have put this on year in and year out because it is a it, it is a nice event and it is a very safe event. And I think some folks may perhaps are feeling a little defensive that they're getting picked on for something that those of us who do understand that folks should have the right uh, to own uh, guns, uh, we want them to be able to to operate them safely and know how to do Stacey, so. Stacey, you want to jump in, and then I want to get Patricia in here. Yeah, I mean, too. I think there's no question this is terrible, terrible timing. Your friend is exactly right. But I think given the climate of the country over the last several years, and, and it gets seems to get worse every year, it's in, it's in bad taste um, no matter when now. I mean, we're, we're just in a different time. And, you know, Republicans can do what they will, say what they want to say, but this is a terrible political move for them. And, and, and it's such another unforced error, just like I felt like the um, HB 481 was. This, this is going to hurt them in the areas where they need it most going into 2020. And Ed and, and anybody else who wants to go out and talk about gun safety or talk about the importance of the Second Amendment, you can do that without standing on a shooting range. Patricia, well, wait a minute. I, I, and and I, I do have to sort of disagree here. It's one thing to, to question uh, our, our gun safety laws and to ask the very serious questions as to whether or not, uh, you know, 100-round magazines should be permitted or whether or not we should uh, extend uh, background checks, both of which, well, one I believe should be banned and one I believe should be enhanced. Okay, I'll, let me say that right up front. It's another thing to say that an event uh, that is simply involving gun safety and, and marksmanship uh it will always look bad. I just, I'm, I'm just not there. Well, right, me, now, well, we'll see what happens in the sixth. Let me. Get, I want to get. I want to get both Patricia and Andrea in here before the break. First, let me mention this to you, Patricia. As I think you already know this, Republicans are saying, and they may have some reason for this, saying, "Look, if anybody can, be, you know, stand behind this event and and uh, and and show its legitimacy, it's Barry Loudermilk, who was at the ball field the day." that Steve Scalise and others were shot at Scalise, almost lost his life in that. They're using that to say, look, Laudermilk knows what gun violence is like. He's a, he's, he, and, and this event matters to him. It's an interesting attempt to justify that it's okay, the timing at the very least. I don't think it matters who the congressman is. Donald Trump won this district by 25 points. This is not controversial in the 11th district mm. Period. It shows an incredible um, contrast to the 6th District and the 7th District, where I think Republicans are going to be in trouble because of even hearing about events like this. But there, it's a very polarizing issue. And as, as upset as um, many Democrats, even some Republicans, get about the availability of gun safety, um, it's not... Uh, it's not controversial among a lot of conservative Republicans. So I don't think it's a I don't think it's even a close call. And if you want to wait till September, there will be another mass shooting before then. Yeah. I mean, it's just the reality there. It, it, to Stacey's point, there is no good time. We're out of the time when there will not be another mass shooting. So I want to I want to give Andre a chance before I go to the bank. But I also want to tell people um, we're going to we'll post a link to your roll call column, your most recent roll call column, in which you have an interesting take on gun safety legislation. You talk about the crime bill that, that Joe Biden still is trying to answer for, which many people thought really targeted the African-American community in a disproportionate way. You say in this column, we need a white person's uh, crime <laughs> bill to deal with just yes. this, the, the, the mass shootings that we're dealing with today. Yes. Uh, well, I uh, have been covering a Democratic presidential candidates and. And the crime bill, the 1994 crime bill, comes up quite a bit specifically because of the racial disparities that emerged from who went to jail for crimes and who did not. Um, and just what that has done to hollow out so many African-American communities around the country. So it is on the minds of um, Democratic voters at every single event. Um, my point is that we are not there on creating a safe society, but the problems we have are so different now. Yeah. And, um, you know, crime in New York City has dropped by 90 percent, which is a huge success uh, since the crime bill. Uh, but embedded in the crime bill that had a lot of problems were ideas like a limit on high capacity magazines that yeah. limited that to 10 rounds yeah. uh, and assault weapons ban. Um, so there were what we're talking about now in gun 
legislation that seems so radical and too la- radical to pass was law 15 years ago. And so my point is that there are addressing gun safety, technology, and mental health needs to be a package. Uh, uh, bef- Tom, can we post that link? You've got it. Faust is already on top of that. Andre, you get the last word before the break. So I, I agree with Patricia that this isn't going to be a problem within the 11th district. Um, and so it's going to play well. I think the risk is how it gets picked up nationally. Yes. Um, and so as it gets picked up nationally, then it's the state party and the state that kind of has to deal with it, not necessarily the 11th district's problem. And will that reverberate? You know, you know, I, as, as I've said plenty of times on, on, on this uh, panel, you know, I'm somewhat waiting for uh, certain Republicans to take sort of moral courage and stand up for things that are right. And so oftentimes I'm talking about race, but on this particular inis- issue, a way to perhaps redeem the national story is to use this event to talk about the ways that one can use guns safely, about what types of guns, you know, should be given sort of the full Second Amendment protections versus which ones need to be regulated. And so, you know, if Congressman Loudermilk were talking about his experience having watched that shooting and then why he thinks this gun safety event is sort of appropriate in that, that's very, very different than just looking like people are shooting guns for the heck of it. But I I know we're out of town, but but just real briefly – the Democrats can overplay their hand here. Uh, it's one thing to talk about uh, gun safety. It's one thing to talk about background checks and, and, and going after high-capacity magazines. But when we get to a point where Democrats are perceived as, well, we just don't believe there should be any kind of event that involves a gun, suddenly you're, you're, not, you're not pro-gun safety. You're anti-gun. All right. And but that, no, nobody's and saying of Georgia, that. Nobody is saying that. The people of Georgia right. will not go for it. All right. Uh, Galloway, this also gives us a chance as we go to break to promote the fact that you have a column coming out on Sunday. It's already on line on AJC.com about a Republican 6th District candidate. Brandon yeah, uh, Beach. Brandon Beach, state senator, he kind of dipping his toe in the in in in, in the in the Republican response to Dayton, and maybe beginning to move toward what Andre is talking about. Are Republicans going to stand up and have some courage on this right, issue? Right, he is. He is. He's running kind of a pro Second Amendment, but right. campaign. Yeah. All right. Let's get to our final break of the show, and we'll have more in just a moment. Hi, I'm Ross Sorrell, GPB's reporter here in Atlanta, but I cover more than the state's largest city. I tell stories about the problems farmers in the southern part of Georgia are facing, and I report on transportation issues affecting the 13 metro Atlanta counties. We believe express lanes is our way to manage the amount of traffic or demand to give those users the reliable trip times that they're looking for. Stick with us to hear these stories and more. GPB News, stand with the facts. Forget Aspen and Tahoe. How about skiing Jupiter's moon Europa? It might be kind of icy skiing, a little bit more like the East Coast. Amira Plato on Science Friday. Take a tour of Jupiter and Saturn and their rings and moons, plus the challenges of bringing high-speed Internet to the wide-open spaces of rural Texas. How to bridge the digital divide, all on Science Friday from WNYC Studios. 3 o'clock this afternoon here on GPB. 400 years ago, I believe next week, uh, a ship carrying some 20 surviving Africans who were captured and brought over to Virginia. This is where the ship landed at a place called Point Comfort. It's now a national monument, the Fort Monroe National Monument. Only 20 of the hundreds who were on that ship survived, but we mark it because it's the first instance of slaves being brought to America and sold while they were here. We will talk more about the history of that next week when we get to that um, anniversary. But I... but. But in the meantime, what we can talk about for just a couple minutes, because we're running short on time, is that two of our candidates for the United States Senate are are now, and that means Teresa Tomlinson and Ted Terry, are now saying they support a commission, task force, however you want to describe it, to explore how we offer reparations to African Americans today for what uh, uh, their ancestors uh, dealt with. Uh, who wants to take a shot at uh, talking about this uh, first? Who wants it? Okay, well, I'll, I'll jump in here. Uh, number one, uh, this kind of follows with, with what uh, Stacey Abrams said during the gubernatorial ca- campaign. Uh, mm-hmm. It was it was handing it to a commission. And and it's, it's you know, you've, you've got you've got a few options. The, 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 the most drastic option is our cash, cash payments to individuals. In the past, that's, that's, that's 
been really problematic. I mean, if you look, if you take a look at the reparations that West Germany uh, paid to individual uh, victims of the Holocaust over over the over over and they're, and, and they're still, still paying. doing it, it was it was it was a it was a it was a very bureaucratic and sometimes heartbreaking process. I, I think what we may be headed toward. It is 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 a is a some first of all an acknowledgement that this is what this country was based on. This is what it was at its foundation uh, for for two hundred and fifty years officially, and and the and then the uh, the effects remain. But also, I think you know you're going to have people uh, uh, demand, say, kind of permanent foundational fun- funding for for historically black colleges and universities. Uh, I think you're going to see people directing, uh, looking at housing and the and the and the decades of of, of discrimination uh, for, fe- formal would, federal and discrimination. Why we? Andra, so you know, part of this is 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 personal. Um, aside from being a descendant of slaves, yeah. I grew up in Virginia. Um, it was funny, you know, in the write-up, it talks about how John Rolfe is noting them. I grew up about five miles from where John Rolfe really? and Pocahontas lived. I oh, went to John man. Rolfe Middle School. <laughs> oh, <very> um, <laughs> Pocahontas is on the flag of my uh-huh. county. Um, and uh, to know that those uh, first enslaved Africans were Angolan, I know through DNA testing that allegedly part of my mom's family is, you know, Angolan. So from that part of central West Africa, um, I can trace my ancestry back to Virginia plantations. I can't get much further than that, but I can tell you sort of where people were sort of around the time of the civil war. So yeah, this is real. Um, I think it's important to point out here that what people have warmed up to is the idea of studying the possibility. And part of that is going over the history, which so many of us don't know. Um, And this is people of all races and backgrounds. And then also trying to figure out, well, how do we address these particular issues? And so what people are exploring are possibilities. And all of the issues that you raise are very important logistical and procedural questions. And I think people have shied away from it because it's been complicated, uh, because it's the idea of who would actually sort of receive these reparations So as we are so far removed from slavery. So, you know, what about immigrants who were enslaved in the Caribbean, for instance, right? Are they eligible for it? What about African immigrants who have come over in the post-65 immigration wave? Would they be eligible for it? All of these kinds of things. And I think probably the the place where we're going to acknowledge or we have to acknowledge we're probably going to encounter difficulties is that we do not agree in this country. We understand what interpersonal racism is, and I think people get what you know prejudice looks like, and they certainly get obvious things like racial slurs or attacking somebody directly because of their race. We do not understand structural racism at all, and we very much disagree about what those things look like. And so because we disagree about structure and about what the definition of structural racism is, the remedy for that is... is I think going to be difficult, and I just this doesn't mean we shouldn't do it, but I think we should anticipate where the bottlenecks we are going to, to come. We need to do an entire. Let's let's plan right now, Tom Faust, to do an entire show on reparations. It's a subject that we should not dismiss in just a couple minutes, but that's all we have. It's like a minute or so left, Patricia. Aside from the um, the moral ethical issues involved here, is a political issue. How does this play for a Teresa Tomlinson and a Ted Terry? Uh, assuming that one of them gets through the general election. The issue has really become a litmus test for Democratic candidates. And uh, I think it is agreed among activists that you we cannot consider you truly progressive and reliably progressive if you are not in favor of at least studying reparations. And we, we heard it uh, on the most recent presidential debate stage, mm. reparations discussed pretty extensively. Marianne Williamson had her most Googled moment on the stage when she was talking about reparations and her very specific ideas about it. So I think it's it, we're just starting to hear about it on the national level. We will continue right. to. Uh, I've really got 30 seconds. You want to weigh in very, very quickly, and then Stacy, Ed? Well, the only thing I would weigh in on is I, I think that we are beyond simply just saying we're going to study. Let's let's go forth to certain actions. I do think that our society needs to be educated best, All right. better. It, I do think that we need specific programs Stacey, like him. But let's move beyond you want to make study. Quick comment? Well, quick, while, while we've quick. got the commission going, let's just make sure we keep our eyes on things that address uh, root inequalities, quality right. public education, financial aid for college, I got, housing, com- health care. I'm I'll completely out of time. <laughs> Phenomenal panel. Thank you for a great way to end the week, all of you. I'm Bill Nygut. We'll see you on Monday with another Political Rewind. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. 
NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.